0: Tonight, the long-awaited results of the January 6th investigation are in, and Donald Trump has been charged with four federal crimes. We break down the latest criminal indictment, Mr. Trump's third since leaving office, and look ahead to preview his upcoming trial and the impact this could have on the 2024 race for president. This special edition of MetroFocus starts right now.
1: This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Ganz Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation. The Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin.
0: Good evening and welcome to the special edition of Metro Focus, I'm Jack Ford. For the third time this year, Donald J. Trump, the 45th president of the United States, is headed back to court after being criminally indicted by a grand jury. Yesterday, special counsel Jack Smith announced that the former president is charged with four felony counts related to his attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election, culminating in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The charges include conspiracy to defraud the United States and conspiracy against rights, a charge alleging that Mr. Trump, who's expected to be arraigned on Thursday, deliberately attempted to deprive American citizens of their constitutional right to have their votes counted. This comes just weeks after criminal indictments related to Mr. Trump's handling of classified government documents and his alleged hush money payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels. A fourth indictment in Georgia also possibly still looms. And joining us now with more on the historical significance of Mr. Trump's latest criminal indictment, what the charges actually mean and how they could impact the 2024 presidential race. are Terry Austin, host and legal analyst for Law and Crime, the nationally syndicated legal affairs program, Renato Mariotti, a former federal prosecutor, well-known attorney and politico-legal affairs columnist, and Russell Payne, a political reporter for the New York Sun. So welcome to all of you. Appreciate you spending some time with us. We got a lot to talk about, so let's just jump in right away. And I think the first place to start makes sense is to talk about the charges themselves and and what what legally, what do they mean? So, uh, Renato, let me come to you, former federal prosecutor, and, and we'll, we'll start at the beginning. And that should be the notion of, of conspiracy and conspiracy law. So three of these four accounts involve conspiracy. Give us a quick working definition, what you as a prosecutor would say to a jury about what a conspiracy means.
1: Sure, a conspiracy is just an agreement to commit a crime. So essentially what well, all that requires doesn't have to be written down, it doesn't need to be a formal agreement, but there just needs to be two people and the meaning of the minds. People come together and make a decision that they want to work together uh, to commit uh, some other crime.
0: Okay. So understanding that now, let, let's start at the top. And the first count talks about a conspiracy to defraud the United States. That sounds really big, really expansive. Again, give us, Renato, a working definition in this case, um, what this count is alleging. Wow.
1: Uh, it's a lot. Um, it, yeah. it really, I mean, I think the defense will have an argument. It's alleging a lot of different things at the same time. But what I think he basically is coming down to is there is a conspiracy to try to defeat the lawful functions of the United States uh, government through the handoff of the of power through the electoral vote counting process. And that was done through a variety of different ways, w- whether it involved you trying to use the Justice Department to create um, uh, a, uh a, mis- a misunderstanding or misapprehension about potential voter fraud whether it was about uh trying to pressure uh the vice president to stop the vote counting process or whether it was for example using what's called they they call fake electors essentially people who are submitting false certificates claiming that they were the true electors from a state when they were not
0: and the the middle two counts Fairly straightforward. Conspiracy to obstruct the governmental function, which is what was supposed to be taking place in Congress, approving the electoral votes. Uh, The third count is the actual, the substantive count of obstructing or attempting to obstruct that. And the fourth one is is a little bit unusual. It talks about the notion, again, of of conspiracy um, against rights of individuals. And, And the indictment says here, in this case, the right for voters to vote and for their vote to count. Renata, again, unusual count, not something that people have seen in the past. Quick definition of this.
1: Wow, um, that's a big question uh, because you know I, it's not entirely clear to me yeah. exactly what Jack Smith's theory is there. I don't think it's entirely clear in the indictment. I do think there will be some motions uh, that the defense are gonna make to try to clarify that. And I think it's fair for you to say that this has never been done before. This type of charge. In other words, the statute's been charged many times, right. but in different contexts. And so I, I think what he's trying to suggest is, is that, for example, the votes of the people who um lawfully voted and and you know why expected their votes to count in a particular state like Georgia, mm-hmm. for example, uh were there was an attempt to deprive them of their vote through these various unlawful means, some of which I described a minute
0: yeah. ago. And as you said, unusual in, in the past, it's a Reconstruction era statute. Um a civil rights protection had to do obviously with the with civil rights battles back then. Um uh, but we haven't seen it, certainly in, in the uh, the recent past here. So Terry, question to you, and I'll I'll ask you to, to look not just from the defense perspective here, we'll come back to that, but general overall. Were you surprised at the counts that came out of this grand jury?
2: I think they made complete sense. I mean, if you think about it, Congress investigated this very issue and handed off basically to the DOJ and that's how we got the special counsel. And if you watch those proceedings last year, they did lead up to these specific counts. And I think what Jack Smith is trying to do here is say, look, This was something that was done against the United States of America. It was done against Congress, as far as the process is concerned, and it was done against individual voters. So that's the circumference that we have here. He wanted to make sure that he addressed all of the injured parties. And I think the specific allegations within those charges make complete sense. I mean, we just heard Renata talking about them. It is specific as far as, you know, the collecting, the counting, the certifying. That's what they did as far as those states were concerned. They were trying to say, look, the process was wrong. The Dominion voting machines were not right. There were people who were cheating. There were these individuals in Georgia who were trying to throw away votes. So specific allegations for each of those three areas. And I think it does make complete sense.
0: So Russell, from your perspective as a journalist, you've been reporting on this case, you've been looking at the political aspects of it. Uh, I want to get to you in a minute about the, the, the fundraising aspect of this. But let me ask a bigger question of you, and, and that is, what are you seeing in terms of the political reaction, the reactions from other political allies, uh, political critics of the president, supporters, non-supporters? What's the sense you're getting? I know it's just been a short time since this happened, but what's your sense that you're getting about the political reaction to all of this?
3: Well, we know that uh, most Republicans are lining up to support President Trump, including most of his um, com- opponents in the primary. For example, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy issued a statement uh, talking about, you know, how he feared that uh, this charge or these sets of, this set of charges would um, be. Uh, a sort of instigating event in America's slide into, I believe the term he used was a banana republic. Yeah. Um, you know, what you are also seeing is that there are a few Republicans who are coming out against Donald Trump. I think most notably uh, Vice President Pence. He said that this indictment was disqualifying for him. Um, you know, obviously his testimony is going to be important for this case. He was there yeah. and he was supposed to be a key player in this a sort of scheme to overturn the results of the 2020 election um and then there's a couple other players on the republican side who have come out against uh, mr trump in this respect including uh, chris christie and asa hutchinson um you know i don't necessarily know that their voice carries a huge amount of sway with the republican electorate uh, is, is one of the key issues there in terms of democrats um, the, the big player, President Biden, hasn't really commented on the issue yet.
0: Mm-hmm. They've been the White House has been very careful to stay away from this. They keep saying, look, this is not our investigation. This is the Department of Justice and the special prosecutor. Uh, Russell, a, a, a kind of a political observation here from you I'd like is we and when you talk about the core, the base, President, former President Trump's base here. He famously said back when he was running in 2016 that he could walk out onto Fifth Avenue in front of his apartment and shoot somebody and he wouldn't lose any votes from his base. Is the reaction you're seeing to these charges now? And and these are significant. And again, we should stress that as the special prosecutor did, these are allegations um the former president is entitled to the same presumption of innocence that anybody else is entitled unless and until a jury decides beyond a reasonable doubt that he's guilty understanding that but it does this when you look at the reaction to these charges uh from his base does that seem to support what he said
3: you know i i think that there is going to be very little that could come out in this case that would change the opinion of uh the members of President Trump's uh, base of voters, right? His most ardent supporters uh, trust him over almost any other source of information. And with these past indictments, understanding that this most recent indictment, uh, the allegations contained within it it are much more serious. Um, You know, with past indictments, President Trump has, in fact, sort of received a polling bump um, as Republicans and President Trump himself argues that it's a a witch hunt and. you know, they're coming after him for political reasons.
0: Yeah. Hey, Terry, were, were you surprised at all that this indictment did not include an insurrection charge? We've seen them levied against some of those who were actively involved in January 6th. Uh, we've seen convictions, uh, members of the Proud Boys, for instance. Um, so so I think a number of people may have suspected that an insurrection charge would be part of this indictment. It's not.
2: That surprised you, Terry? It's not that surprising to me. I think one of the reasons we don't see it is because he didn't physically participate in the January 6th right. Now, what they did say is that he exploited violence for that January 6th right, and he wanted to delay the election certification, so they tied him into it, but probably because he wasn't physically there. Now, we know he made speeches right before and possibly you know that's why they're saying that he's exploiting the situation he's encouraging them he said we have to go and fight i think that's as far as they wanted to go and frankly i think it makes sense to leave it out they want to make sure that this indictment is really something that is tight they don't want to have any sort of allegation in there that might not convince a jury that this is something he should be convicted upon all of it i mean some of it may be but i think you really want to have a jury say, yes, I think he did all those things, because once they start parsing it out, you know, there's doubt there and you might not be able to get the convictions on all of them.
0: Yeah. Hey, Renata, help us understand the notion of unindicted co-conspirators. All right. As As we know, there are six of them listed in the indictment. Most people seem to have come to the conclusion that five are fairly easily identifiable based upon other evidence. Um, uh, Number one seems to be Rudy Giuliani. Number two seems to be John Eastman. Three, Sidney Powell. Uh, Four, Jeffrey Clark. Five, Kenneth Cheeseborough. People are a little bit up in the air about who the number six unindicted co-conspirator is. So without getting involved in the details of them, just explain to us the notion of why an indictment would list unindicted co-conspirators who are apparently known to the grand jury, but why they're not charged in the indictment?
1: Okay, great question. So we talked about earlier that conspiracy law, essentially what a conspiracy is, is when two people agree to commit a crime. That is a separate crime from the underlying crime. So for example, if you and me agree to commit a bank robbery, whether we complete the bank robbery or not, if we go and we we purchase some uh, ski masks and guns and so forth and get ready for it, and then you know, it, we ultimately don't carry forward with it, or if we do, we can be charged separately with conspiracy, and then if we go forward with it, we could be charged with bank robbery or attempted bank robbery. So it's its own crime. So all those people technically did commit crimes, at least that's what the government believes. But the government, first of all, has to prove uh, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt as to each person. And so they may have better evidence regarding one person's state of mind than another. So that's often why you see an unindicted go conspirator. In other words, because, you know, we have great evidence, to say, to prove if you're a prosecutor, you have great evidence to prove that one person made this agreement, but, you know, understanding exactly what was in the other person's head is hard. There are other reasons, though, as well. It's a little bit complicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, There are other reasons as well. Sometimes, for example, there's a decision made by prosecutors that some people aren't worth prosecuting the drug dealer conspires with his girlfriend or some courier who's overseas or whatever, and you want to charge it that way to get in evidence or to set forth certain things in your indictment is a conspiracy, but you don't really think those people are worth charging. Here, what I think may have been the case is that Jack Smith made a decision that he wanted to proceed to trial as expeditiously as possible. And he thought that if he charged more people, that
0: potentially that would delay him in doing so yeah that that's a, a a good point and i'm going to get to that in one second the notion of which of these cases goes to trial first um the terry oftentimes as you know and and when you see unindicted cons- co-conspirators, co-conspirators it may well be mean that this is somebody who's already flipped who's already providing information and assistance to the government or the the state in the prosecution. Have you seen anything that would suggest to you that any of these six people have have already flipped and are now working with the government?
2: Well, I think we might conclude that John Eastman may have, I mean, just based on testimony so far, I don't think that Rudy Giuliani would have at this point. Mm -hmm. And these are people that we are thinking are the six you know, unindicted individuals—they haven't literally been named, but just based on the information in the indictment and the statements that have made previously, people are thinking that those individuals, including you know Sidney Powell, who's another lawyer—I mean, mostly lawyers—are the individuals that they are saying are the unindicted co-conspirators. Uh, they have, uh, you know. A, Person that we don't know who it is, but it's hard to say whether or not they've slipped or they're just providing information. And I think that is part of the reason they haven't been named yet. I think Jack Smith is trying to keep his options open. Just because they're not indicted today doesn't mean they won't be indicted tomorrow. He can get as much information from them, he can keep investigating and questioning, and with the possibility of not being indicted and then ultimately. Make no promises and then go forward with an indictment. So I think he's trying to keep his options open at this time.
0: That's a good point. That doesn't mean that they can't be indicted down the road here. Russell, let me come back to something that that you touched on. And this is something that you've been doing some very good reporting on. And that is the ability of the former president to leverage these charges against him for fundraising. And, and the impact that these the legal bills himself and um, apparently bills of other people involved uh, being taken care of by his, his political action group. Talk a little bit about what you found with regard to how much of that money is going out and what we've seen in the past about his ability to, as I said, to use this as a vehicle to enhance his fundraising.
3: In terms of the spending from the uh, Trump political organization, across, you know, three principal com- uh, committees, his campaign committee, his joint fundraising committee, and his leadership pack. I believe he spent somewhere uh, in the range of $57 million in the first half of this year. And about $40 million of that, as I understand it, was spent on legal fees, which is obviously a massive bill um, to, uh, to have sitting, you know, on your organization. Um, you know, whether or not this turns into uh, the organization running out of money. I think that remains to be seen. Uh, obviously, going through uh, all these different cases is going to be quite expensive, and it's already been quite expensive. But I would expect him to use this to fundraise. And actually, he's already fundraising off of this latest indictment. Uh, as I reported in a piece out this morning, um, he is, uh, or rather his political organization is selling T-shirts that say, I stand with Trump, and you can get one for a $47 donation to his PAC. Um, I am suspecting that that $47 number is, you know, a reference to him wanting to be the 47th president.
0: not. we heard uh, the special prosecutor, very brief statement, uh, underscoring, as we mentioned before the fact that these are allegations um, that the former president, as we mentioned, titled the presumption of innocence until a jury finds otherwise beyond a reasonable doubt. We also heard him use the term a speedy trial. Should we look at that as a signal of him saying, look, I've got two prosecutions going on here and I'm going to move this one forward first before the documents case down in Florida? And and if he is, why would he want to do that, do you think?
1: Well, I I don't think it's exactly what you said. I think he he used the term speedy trial. True. Mm -hmm. He also used the term speedy trial when he announced the Mar-a-Lago case.
0: Right, right. He is
1: very eager to move these cases forward quickly. He believes that it's important to get these cases done before the election for a variety of reasons that he has not specified. But I, you know, one could surmise what those reasons are. However, um, that does that's just uh, an indication of his view. It's not an indication of reality. And in Florida, he's run into reality. And Mm -hmm. to be very blunt, you know, his hyper aggressive schedule there I thought was never realistic. I never thought that case was going to uh, go to trial before the election. I wrote so I wrote that column in Politico, I think a few days after the indictment saying that. And Mm -hmm. I would bet my house that it won't go to trial before the election Um, as for. So regarding this. So I think he's approaching this one. This is his only hope, you know, to use the Star Wars reference. Right. Uh, You know, uh, Obi Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. This is his Mm -hmm. only hope to get one of his trials uh, before the election. Will it happen? It's possible.
0: Would you think that looking looking at this one then, as opposed to the documents case, so this has a single defendant, documents case has three. Um, the The documents case has all of the national security elements that are woven through it that, as, as you know, are going to require hearings and you've got to get credentials, you know, approvals at, for a various level of people involved. So uh, again, just looking at the practicalities of this, and, and you've kind of suggested this already, but I just wanted to, to mention those. At the practicalities of moving forward, single defendant, multiple defendants, you know, uh, secure, national security issues, a, a fact pattern here that we've seen. Not, I'm not suggesting it's not complicated, it is. But would you, if you were running this, would would you think that you'd be able to make a pretty good argument to move this one forward quicker than the one down in Florida?
1: Oh, certainly quicker than the one in Florida. I mean, the one okay. in Florida yeah. uh, not only has multiple defendants, but it involves classified documents. Yeah, and that re- make that requires all sorts of special rules regarding discovery and review of documents. You've got to go into a skiff to look at them. You can't just. You know, do it from your laptop or your iPad in between your other meetings. Uh, if you're a lawyer, um, and there's a, a law, CIPA, and that allows for what's called an interlocutory appeal uh, of discovery disputes regarding that. So, in other words, right. what the defense can do is they can make extraordinary requests regarding classified documents. The government can, you know, if if Cannon finds any part of it, Judge Cannon finds any part of that uh, use, you know, useful. That, uh, or and grants it or you know, thinks that's important and grants it, then the defense essentially is putting the government in a position where if they want a speedy trial, uh, they have to just, you know, they, they have to mm-hmm. give over things that aren't the defense isn't entitled to, or they have to put everything on pause and go up for an appeal that would just put everything uh, right. on pause. Right. So now there's no way, I mean, that case is multiple defendants. One just got charged. There's mm-hmm. just so much that you could do in that case to delay yeah. this one is there a chance that it's going to go sure if you told me this was uh uh, uh not john uh not uh donald john trump but it was john doe the dc case right. right. it was involving fraud or regarding uh ponzi scheme or something i'd say it's possible that it could go mm-hmm. uh, and it's possible it could not but and if if john doe in the hypothetical is like could you make do a bunch of things to make it not go before uh a, a year and whatever, a month, yeah, yeah. probably. Um, yeah. But the, the judge here may be motivated to move it quickly.
0: Yeah. Terry, let, let's look uh, ahead at some possible defenses here. One may well be, and I've, I've seen this kind of suggested, one may well be that the former president would say, I'm relying upon my, the advice of my counsel. I had a lot of lawyers involved. And yes, some of them said no, but some of them said yes. So talk about the, the ability to say that I am insulated from criminal responsibility because I relied upon the advice of lawyers. How, how does that fly, Terry?
2: Well, I think he will try exactly that. He's going to say, "I did what I was told to do, my lawyers are supposed to know the law. But ignorance of the law is not a defense. So he can attempt to deflect. And to a certain extent, I think a jury might try to say, "Okay, you know, if I were in your position, I might not know what the law is. But clearly he knew he was lying. People were telling him around, look, you didn't win the election. You've got to know that you've got to stop all of this lying and telling people that there are individuals who are trying to take the you know vote back and so i don't think that would work he's also trying to say that he had a first amendment right to say that he thought the election you know was a was a hoax and that it was something that was stolen and all of those things i think he's going to try to claim but he knew better and i do think that we have in this indictment specific evidence of knowing better. We have individuals all around him, in his cabinet, in the Department of Justice, people who have advised him, look, this election was won fairly and squarely. There might have been some fraud, but it wasn't fraud that changed the outcome of the election. And you know that. So I don't think he's going to win on those arguments either. Yeah. I think one of the things he is trying to do here is maybe change the venue from D.C. He thinks that it's not a fair place to be. He has already requested that perhaps it get moved to West Virginia. I don't think that's going to happen. But uh-huh. I do think his lawyers are going uh-huh. to make a ton of motions to do a ton of things right. before trial to make this go right. longer and longer.
0: Last question. i got give a minute. Renato. Um, we hear people saying, "Well, can can you run for president if you're uh, if you're charged? Can you run for president if you're a convicted felon? Can you run for president if and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but if somebody is convicted and is actually in prison at the time?" Short answer, Renato, what's the answer? what's the answer to that?
1: Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> uh, okay, and in fact, I think Eugene V. Debs did yes. that. He did Uh, and
0: got like 800,000 votes in 1920. He was in prison, socialist um, party leader. So uh, the answer is, as you said, yes, yes, and yes. Hey, you all have been marvelous here. You've been so informative, helping us understand what is certainly a complicated criminal and political situation. So we thank you all uh, for spending some time with us and, and we'll look forward to talking with you again in the near future. Everybody be well. Thank you again. Thanks for tuning into Metro Focus. You can take our award winning program with you wherever you go with Metro Focus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metro Focus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, wliw.org slash radio and on the NPR one app.